All right, if you're turning your Bibles tonight to John chapter 4, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, what I'd like to do tonight is talk to you about the, the actions and the attitudes of God. The actions and the attitudes of God. John chapter 4, where the Lord Jesus made this statement. In verse 24, he said, God is a spirit. How many of you have that phrase, God is a spirit, in your Bible? Okay. Uh, That may not be altogether accurate. It has that in mind, too, because when you have a noun, person, place, or thing, should be a definite article, the. So the implication is God is not just another spirit among all the spirits. He's the God. He is the spirit from which everything else comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus, asking you to bless your word, bless our time together. We seek to know more about you, that we might have a better and broader foundation to stand upon as we go through this world, that we might have a stronger faith as we realize and contemplate your greatness. We pray for all of these souls that we've mentioned tonight and others that we haven't mentioned that are sick and are ill, that you will intervene, that you will have mercy upon them and heal their bodies, give them a sense of your presence while they're going through these trials. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, for his sake, amen. All right, the Bible is a spiritual book. Now, the most most basic reason that we say that the Bible is a spiritual book is because the author of the Bible is the Spirit, the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit authored the Bible over a period of 1,600 years using over 40 different persons to write the Bible. So the Lord used men to write the Bible, but the Spirit is the author of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the one who authored the Bible. He employed human men to write it, but he guided them in the writing of it. Thus, men wrote the Bible, but the Holy Spirit is the author. Here are a couple of passages you can put down and look at later. Second Peter 1.21, no prophetic message ever came just from the will of man, but men were under the control of the Holy Spirit as they spoke the message that came from God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Another one is Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. It says in your version, all Scripture is inspired. And that word inspired comes from the Greek word that means God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, that's rebuking error, for correction, that's correcting faults, for instruction in righteousness, that's giving instruction in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, so that the man of God that is, the person, man or woman, the Lord's servant, may be complete and fully 
that is thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let me say it a little slightly different way. All Scripture is given by the Spirit of God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking error, for correcting faults, and for giving instructions for living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, so that the Lord's servant may be complete, fully qualified, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, one theological category that aids us in three areas is called accommodating language, accommodating language. Aids us in understanding the scripture, aids us in obeying the Lord, and aids us in teaching others. And we call this accommodating language. And that's what we're going to kind of talk about, what I'm going to talk about to you tonight. The aim of this lesson is to learn a little bit about the accommodating language found in the scripture. What is the purpose of of accommodating language. Well, as you might imagine, the overriding purpose of accommodating language is to help us understand the actions and the attitudes of God, to accommodate our understanding. After all, just to say a few things, He is infinite and we are finite. So how can finite man understand if infinite God? He is holy and we are sinful. Our understanding is darkened. Our heart is depraved. depraved. Our will is powerfully tempted by the flesh and the world and the devil. So how can we understand the holy God? He is omniscient. He knows everything. And we are grossly ignorant. He is omnipresent. And we are limited to one place at a time. He is eternal. But we are limited to time a brief period of time at that. He is spirit, and we are flesh. He is a person without a body, and we are spirits with a body. So we need all the help we can get in understanding who and what he is and what he does. While I'm talking to you, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 17, you'll be a little bit ahead of me. So the question is, how can sinful, mortal, finite, ignorant man understand the infinite, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal God? Now the Lord Jesus Christ told us in Matthew chapter 11 that the Father cannot be known, neither can the Son be known, unless He reveals Himself. The Father can't be known unless He reveals Himself through His Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father but the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal Him. That's Matthew 11, verse 27. So the only way we can know God, the Father, is through the Son. Okay? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, he tells us about the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he says that his wisdom and knowledge are unsearchable. That's what he says, unsearchable. And he says his ways 
or past finding out. You can never understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. In a few weeks, God willing, we're going to look at a chapter that's very, very confusing in the scripture. <laughs> it's very confusing. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. But we can understand that God is wise, that he's a person, that he's working out his will, and we don't understand everything, uh, but we can learn to trust him. So if we can't find these things out, if his wisdom and knowledge are past finding out, and uh, if his ways, his judgments, the way he deals with things in this world, if that can't be known and that can't be found out, how could we even begin to understand him? Well, we come to these two of these theological words that we'll use tonight. One is anthropopathic. Anthro, A-N-T-H-R-O. Anthro has to do with what? Has to do with man. You know, the anthropological, the, the people that study the human race and the history of men. Anthropologist. So that's an anthro, uh, Papathic and anthropomorphic. Uh, pathic has to do with the passions. I'll, I'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. Of God. And the anthropomorphic has to do with the body of God. Now I want you to look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. These are these anthropomorphic and anthropopathic expressions are employed in the Bible to help us understand God, and I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse uh, 24, you are probably familiar with this. This is when the Apostle Paul, it says in verse 16, was waiting in Athens. And it says his spirit was stirred up in him. What that means is he was upset when he saw all the idolatry in the city. And he was in the synagogue disputing with the Jews, verse 17, and devout persons, that is, people who were religious, who observed days and times and seasons. And he was in the marketplace daily with them, verse 17. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, two different groups of philosophies. The Epicureans said, pleasure is the purpose of life. The Stoics said, life is dull and dry, so just bear up under it. They had two different schools here. One, you live for pleasure. The other is, you just grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay? So he gets in a debate, or he's witnessing to them, and they said, what will this babbler say? Verse 18, called him a babbler because he talked to them about the resurrection. They thought he was setting forth strange gods, it says in verse 18, because he preached unto them the resurrection. Then they took him over to Areopagus. Areopagus is an area that they use for debate. And when they got there, they said, may we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is. You're bringing certain strange things to our ears, verse 20, and we want to know what these things mean. Because, it says in verse 21, all the Athenians and the strangers, once were there present, 
spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So they love getting there and talking and philosophizing and asking the whys and wherefores, why is this like this, why is it like that. And so Paul begins to talk to them. He stood in the midst of Mars Hill, verse 22, and he said, You men of Athens, I can see that you're too superstitious. I passed by and I saw your devotions. And you had, you had a devotion, you had a, a, an inscription on a plaque for every god that anybody's ever heard about. But in case you le- left out one, verse 23, I found this inscription to the unknown god. Now he said, that god that you don't know, that's the one that I'm going to present to you. The one you ignorantly worship under other names. I'm declaring him to you. And then he begins in verse 24. And he says, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who manifested himself to men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God, he says, he, he made the world. It wasn't just a local God. He just make the oceans and the mountains and all that. He made the world. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And you can't build a temple for him because he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse 25, neither is he worshiped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything we can give him. He needs nothing we can give him. People talking about, I give to the Lord. You don't give the Lord anything. You're giving the Lord back what he's given you. You can't give him anything. He certainly doesn't need your money. I don't think he's got a bank in heaven and with a savings account. He doesn't need anything. He is complete in himself. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made a one man of all nations for to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He's determined where people would live and how far they'd be able to go. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they may feel after him and find him, though he's not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. All right? Now, Dr. Luke, you know that Luke, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke, is the author of the book of Acts. That's who wrote the book of Acts. Same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. So Dr. Luke tells us in this passage in the book of Acts that God continually gives life to all, breath to all, all things to all, and he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. And he says, though we can't find him, by seeking after him, feeling after him like you would some lost something. He's not far from any one of us, yet we can't see him, we can't find him, we can't know him unless he reveals himself. All right? So he says, in him we have being. In him we have being. That is, we would have no being, we would not be, if he had not given us being. The life that is in us is the life he gives. He gives life, 
to all. When he created Adam in the Garden of Eden, he breathed into him the breath of life. And man became a living soul. He gives life to all. Not just the life of man. He gives life to animals. He gives life to the life of plants. He gives life to all things. And every breath that we draw comes from him. Daniel told one of those kings back there in the Old Testament, I can't remember which one of them, that defied God. He told him, he said, every breath you take is in the hand of the God that I worship. Your next breath is in his hand. Simply stated, the statement in him we have being, simply stated, without the causal power of God, nothing would be. In other words, we are not independent beings. We are contingent beings. Our existence depends and is contingent upon him. There was a time when we did not exist, but there never was a time when he did not exist. Now, you know the story I've told you before about the professor that went into, this professor was a believer, and he went into the office of one of his colleagues, and the, his colleague had a small replica of this part of our galaxy, and this fellow was fascinated by it, and said, that is wonderful, that's something. Who made that? And the guy who was a Christian who had that said nobody. He said, you may, come on, man. You, don't play jokes with me. You think I'm a fool? I know somebody made it. He said, well, how can you think that nobody made that? And that's only an imperfect replica of the universe. And you say nobody made that. How can that be? <laughs> well, God, Luke says, is the cause of all being. He's the cause. Then he says, in him we move. In him we move. What about motion? Without the creator, there would only be inertia. What is that? That means no movement. Nothing could move. We could not move. The earth could not rotate on its axis. The stars could move in their courses. Everything would freeze. He said, in him we move. According to Paul, the invisible qualities of God's power, he tells us this in Romans 1.20, the invisible power, invisible qualities of God's power, and the Godhead are clearly seen through the creation. So he says, men are without excuse. And he says he has put within us a witness of his existence. That which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. So here he says, God gives us being. In him we move. So let's explore just briefly here this, what we're up against here. Uh, the eternal God does not live in time, but time lives in him. Another little illustration I gave you a long time ago was a man said, my goodness, God must be big to fill up this universe. Oh, he said, God doesn't fill up this universe. He said, this universe is in God. He's bigger than the universe. And the universe is infinite. So we don't have a clue about God. We think in terms of distance and miles and all of that. 
This God does not live in time. Time lives in him. Time, of course, marks age, and anything, anyone who lives in time ages. But we read of the Lord in Psalm 110 and verse 3, From the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. That's just a way of saying that the God of the Bible is the same now as he was in the beginning. In the beginning of what? Well, we have to think in terms of time, in the beginning of time, because there is no beginning to eternity. No beginning to eternity. He is the only one who doesn't have to use the past tense. He doesn't have to say, I was or I will be. He is the I am. He alone can say, I am that I am. And we sing that hymn all the time. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever shalt be. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Though we created beings, we live in time, we're limited, we're finite. But time lives in God. The time in which we live is not only limited, but it's marked by days. The scripture says we're to mark our lives by days, really, not by months, even, or years, but the days of the years of our lives. That's what old Jacob said when he appeared before Pharaoh. You can read that in Genesis chapter 47. Pharaoh said, how old are you? How old are you, old man? And Jacob said, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Okay, somebody's out there and they can come in if they want to. David said in Psalm 90 and verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Job said in Job 14 verse 5, of man his days are determined and the number of his months are with thee and thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. That's Job 14, 5. So, to help us in understanding this infinite, eternal God who made all things and in whom all things have being, to help us understand what the inspired author of Scripture means all the time, the Holy Spirit, they give us what we call accommodating language. And that's language given for the purpose of accommodating our limited understanding of divine things. So the first thing we will think about is this anthropopathism. So what is anthropopathism? Well, that's ascribing to God human emotions, human passions, human thoughts, or human attitudes. So it's designed to explain in human terms the will and thus the attitude and the actions of God regarding places and persons and things on earth among men and also principalities and powers. So anthropopathic, by that, what we do is we discover the divine attitude toward mankind 
using the human frame of reference. We're going to look at some passages in just a minute. Anthropomorphism is ascribing to God members of the human anatomy. Members, look, does God have an eye, an eyeball like we have? Does he have an ear like we have? Uh, does he have hands? The hand of the Lord. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, Isaiah says. Well, that is an anthropomorphic statement. That's ascribing bodily parts to God. And he has no body parts. What was the scripture we read when we began today? John 4, 24, God is spirit. God is spirit. Jesus said that. What is a spirit? A spirit is a person without a body. That's what a spirit is. We are, we are persons with bodies. <laughs> you, when you go, 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 went over to the funeral of Judy LePetri, and you go up to the casket, uh, you can look and tell that Judy is not there. That's the body she lived in, but she was not there. She was somewhere else. She was gone to be with the Lord. Now, anthropomorphism ascribes to God members of the human anatomy. Anthropopathism ascribes to God some of the personal traits of man, the personality of man. So, for example, let's turn over to Genesis chapter 6 for just a moment. And I'm going to have to call out a lot of these to you because we won't have time to look at all of them. But I will call them out or maybe I'll print them out for you next week and uh, you can have a list of them. Genesis chapter 6. A famous chapter for a lot of reasons, a controversial chapter in a lot of reasons. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the language there, I'm told, means that they were having a population explosion. Genesis 6 1. And then it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, Verse 3 My spirit shall not always strive with man but that he is also flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Okay, how long did Noah preach before the flood came? 120 years. So this is not talking about your lifespan. He's not saying you can live to be 120. He's talking about the 120 years before the flood. Watch this now. There were giants in those days, verse 4, uh, verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And he said, I'm going to destroy man. I'm going to destroy him. Now I want to ask you a question. Does God repent? I show you a passage in the scripture that says that there's no repentance with him. What does repentance mean? Repentance means to have a change of mind. Okay? We have a change of mind about things because 
we didn't see something that was coming or something came that we can't overcome or get around or get under. Uh, we made a mistake in our judgment. When it comes to salvation, repentance means to turn regarding sin and turn to Christ. I've often said that repentance and faith are opposite sides of the same coin. If you have a two-headed coin, you've got a counterfeit coin. You have to have repentance and faith. If you turn to the Lord, you're turning from your sin. Right? So turning to the Lord is repentance, or turning from your sins is repentance, turning to the Lord is faith. Faith and repentance go together. They stand together. Now, if we have a God and we say He knows everything, and we say He has all power so He can change everything, how can He change His mind? He sent Jonah to preach to Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want to go. Finally, when Jonah did go, after being swallowed by a great fish, and he preached to Nineveh, he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And the king and everybody below the king put on sackcloth and ashes and began to mourn and cry to God, and God spared the city. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to start with. Because <laughs> he hated the Ninevites. Ninevites was a wicked city. There were some bad people in there. Flay people alive, stuff like that, bad people. But God, did he change his mind? Said, okay, they've all repented now. They said they're sorry. So, Now, he had a plan to spare the city to start with. When we read a statement like this, it repented the Lord. What have we got here? Well, we've got a, what we call accommodating language that helps us to understand God's relationship to man and his program and his purpose regarding man. Does the Lord repent? No. It says it grieved him at his heart. Could you see God walking around boo-hooing and crying? Oh, my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just, I just, it's, now that sounds like me. It doesn't sound like the Lord. All of these statements here are statements that come under the heading of accommodating language. The eternal, eternal God cannot be made uneasy. He can't be made to fret. He can't be made to regret. Is it possible for the God who is perfection, is it possible for him to be unhappy? Some seem to think so. I remember hearing Jerry Falwell saying that the divine reason behind the creation of the universe was that God was lonely. He said he was lonely, and he created the world so he could have some fellowship with somebody. Well, that's not true. As I've explained to you before, the Godhead of Scripture is in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and those three persons fellowship with each other. They don't have, God doesn't have to have anything outside of himself. He needs nothing outside of himself to continue to exist. He no, needs nothing outside of himself to, quote, meet his needs. He needs nothing outside of himself to make him happy. This is all accommodation language. Now listen to this long statement. I'm going to read it to you. We don't have that much time. We might have to continue this next week. So far, I've, I've just dealt with one study each week. We'll see. There are expressions 
These are expressions, these are expressions like Genesis 6, after the manner of men and must be understood so as not to reflect upon the honor of God's immutability or felicity. What does immutability mean? It means he doesn't change. He doesn't change his person. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plan. He doesn't change anything because he knows from the beginning all things with one all-encompassing thought. He knows everything that's possible. He knows everything that's probable. He knows everything that's actual. He knows what could happen. He knows what might happen. He knows what will happen. There's nothing he doesn't know. Okay? So these are expressions after the manner of men and must be understood so as not to reflect upon the honor of God's immutability that he doesn't change and his felicity. What does that mean? That means his truthfulness. His truthfulness. He's, he's, he doesn't change and he's truthful. Okay? This language does not imply any passion or uneasiness in God because nothing can create disturbance to the eternal mind but it expresses his just and holy displeasure against sin and sinners, against sin as odious to his holiness and against sinners as obnoxious to his justice. He is pressed by the sins of his creatures, according to Amos 2.13, wearied, Amos 43.24, broken, Ezekiel 6.9, grieved, Psalm 95.10, and here, in Genesis 6, we just read, he's grieved at his heart, in his heart, as men have grieved him, as it says here. Uh, like when we're grieved about something, when we've been wronged, uh, uh, treated unkindly, or so on. Does God hate sin, and shall not we hate it? Has our sin grieved him, and shall we not be grieved and pricked to his heart for it? Oh, that his disconsideration may humble us and shame us, that we may look on him whom we have thus grieved and mourn, Zechariah 12, 10. It does not imply any change of God's mind, for he is of one mind, and who can turn him? With him there is no variableness, we read that in the book of James, no variableness or shadow of turning but it expresses a change of his way. When God had made man upright, he rested and was refreshed, Exodus 31, 17. And his way towards him was such as showed he was pleased with the work of his hands, but now man has apostatized, he cannot do otherwise, and show himself displeased, so the change was in man and not in God. Okay? God repented that he made man, but we never find him repenting that he redeemed man, though that was a work of much greater expense, because special and effectual grace is given to secure the great ends of redemption, so that those gifts and callings are without repentance, Romans eleven twenty nine. All right, that's a lot for you to put in your pipe. But let me tell you some things that we can look at briefly tonight. I'll try to give you uh, uh, a list maybe, maybe next week. So we'll think about 10 or 11 of these. We don't have time to cover all of them, but what about repentance? Does God change his mind? Did he not foresee the future? So why do you change your mind? Why do I change my mind? Because something unsuspected came up, because something came up, as I've already said, that you couldn't overcome. But are either of those possibilities possible 
for being who is God. Now, look at Exodus 32, just for a moment. The second book, so we'll go this way. Exodus chapter 32. Now, we just read in Genesis 6, I believe it says in many translations that it grieved him at his heart. Isn't that what it says? Does God have a heart? Not like you have. No, that is an anthropomorphic statement. It's using a human heart, the heart, the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the hand, the feet of the Lord. All of those things are to help us understand his displeasure that we are out of his will or we're not walking according to his will. Nothing can grieve him at his heart because he doesn't have a heart like you have and like I have. Obviously, if we have emotions, doesn't the Bible say he made man in his image? It doesn't mean his physical image, but it means what we are spiritually inside and our personality. That's how we're like God. So obviously, as David said, he that made the eye, does he not see? Well, he does, but he doesn't see with an eyeball, with an optic nerve, like you and I do. He that made the ear, does he not hear? Yes. He that made the tongue, can he not speak? He that made the feet, can he move from one place to another? Well, he certainly can, but he doesn't move with his feet. Those are statements to help us understand the being of God who is everywhere present with all of his being. Now... I can't deal with the incarnation of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because we do believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Godhead. And by the way, any time God has ever revealed himself, any time he's ever revealed himself from the beginning, he always revealed himself in the second person of the Godhead. Jesus is called the Word, the Word. When God created the world, how did he create it? He created it with a Word. He created it with a Word. God said, let there be. That Word through which he created all things is the second person of the Godhead who later came into history as the man Jesus and lived here in this world and died on the cross as the God-man. Now, see, that's a little bit bigger than our understanding. There's no way we can grasp that. We can't. There are a lot of theologians who are liberal and don't believe the Scripture, and they would argue that the incarnation implies a change in God. But there's no change in God. Exodus chapter 32. Um, let's see. Verse 14, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now, if you read this chapter, you're going to see in the very first verse that the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain. I said, he's been up there a long time. He's dead, man. He's not coming back. He's dead. And so they got Aaron to make him a golden calf 
which they did. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 7, verse 7, Exodus 32, the Lord said to Moses, get down for thy people. <laughs> which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves, they have turned quickly out of the way whence I commanded them, they have made them a molten calf, they have worshipped it, they have sacrificed thereto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, whence they have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 9, I have seen this people, it's a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I'll make of thee a great nation. Even though you're 80-something years old, Moses, I'll fix you where you can have some kids. We'll raise up another nation out of you. And... Moses interceded, verse, 30, verse 11. Lord, why doth thy, thy wrath wax hot against thy people whence thou hast brought forth? The Egyptians will say, verse 12, they'll say, he just brought them out here for mischief. Their God might have gotten them out of Egypt, but he's not powerful enough to get them into the promised land and to defeat all their nations. And they'll hear about all of that. And then Moses said, turn from your, fa uh, your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and you said, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your seed, and they shall inherit it. And verse 14 says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do in his people. Now did God change his mind? Okay, Moses, you've convinced me. I didn't see that. I just didn't understand everything until you brought it up. <laughs> Is that the kind of God we have? No. These are all statements of accommodating language. And you have uh, repentance is accommodating language. Hatred, which has to do with arrogance, bitterness, vindictiveness, and implacability. Is hatred a sin? It is. So we've got to explain something that God hated Esau. You know what it is to hate somebody? God he doesn't hate anybody like we hate them. It's a different type of hate. <laughs> it's not him over here throwing a tantrum like we do. I hate him and I'm going to get him. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He's at total peace at all times. There's nothing that shakes him up. There's nothing that rattles him. These are all accommodating language. Hatred. Anger, anger, uh, usually anger in the Bible is used to express God's opposition to uh, sin and the fact uh, uh, it expresses the holiness of God, the holiness of God, using the language of accommodation, the righteousness and justice of, of God are related to the anger of God. Scorn, let's look at one more, we'll stop here, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, we'll stop right here with this. I'll name the others to you, but at least I've exposed you to it. Proverbs chapter 1, find the book of Psalms and then Proverbs. And while you're, while you're turning, I'll mention another one to you. <clears throat> Here God says in Proverbs chapter 1, 
He's presenting himself as wisdom, beginning in verse 20. The Bible says that the way to be wise is to get God's word in you. Begin to think God's thoughts after him, and you'll be a wise person. You'll understand things in the world. You'll understand the people, things that people don't understand. You'll be able to see things that other people won't see. To be wise, you get in God's word, and you get God's word in you. Okay? So wisdom, Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, he's called the wisdom of God. He's wisdom in the flesh. So here, the wisdom of God comes out and starts crying and says, listen to me, listen to me. Verse 21, she cries in the chief place where all the people are, in the gates, in the city where people come in and out. She says, verse 22, or he says, how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity in the scorners, delight in the scorning, and fools hate knowledge? Turn at my reproof. I'll pour out my spirit to you, verse 23. I'll make known my words to you, verse 24. I've called you. You refused. I stretched out my hand. No man regarded. You said it not all my counsel. You'd have none of my reproof, so I'm going to laugh at you, verse 26. What is that? That's scorn. Scorn, the Lord uses our understanding of sarcasm and scorn and ridicule. The idea is that man, that when man will not listen to God, then he gets into a bad and perhaps dangerous situation, and he may blame God, but there can be no retaliation against God And so the Lord says, I'll laugh at you. All this means is, if you don't have instructions about life and dealing with life and dealing with situations in life, when you get in that situation, you might call out to God, oh God, help me. And he's going to say, I gave you my word and you wouldn't listen. That's what that means. I gave you my word and you wouldn't listen. So I will laugh. He's pitching himself as laughing. What about Psalm 2? Psalm 2, where the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. And then it says, he that setteth in the heavens shall laugh. Well, that means you just can't, you can't change God. You can't get up and change him. Scorn, benevolence, even the love of God has to be understood as accommodating language. Compassion, long-suffering, blessedness, and I wrote down a couple more. Uh, I think that was it. Those are the ones that are it. So you've got an idea now about when you read things that seem to imply some kind of change in God, there is no change in God. And God does not throw a fit like we do gets upset and gets mad says, I'm going to, I tell you what, I'm tired of the United States spitting in my face. I'm going to wipe them out, brother, if my name. He does, he's always, nothing rattles him. I don't know how to say it any other way. He is accommodating us. He's accommodating us with his program and his purpose and his will with accommodating language by using body parts the hand of God, the eye of God, the ear of God, the mouth of God, the, the feet of God, and by using man's personality. 
that we're happy, we're sad, we're grieved. We are the Lord, your God is a jealous God. Do you think God is jealous in the same way we are? No. But he demands from us that we have no other God before him. All right. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bow before you as the great, immutable, sovereign God that is above all things. And we confess that in, in you we live, we move, and we have our being. We could have no being without you. We couldn't move without you. We certainly couldn't have life without you. We're thankful for all of your grace and your blessings. We're thankful for what you have given to us in your Son. And pray that you'll just help us to be faithful and to be students and disciples of your Word, that we may know what your will is as revealed in the Scriptures. We pray again for those brothers and sisters that we've mentioned tonight, that you will be pleased to intervene on their behalf and to heal them and to help the LaPetri family in the loss of Judy and to comfort them as only you can. Bless us as we part. Use us for your glory. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake, amen. All right, thank you.